Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. The um, well, it's great to have everybody here, and it's it should be. Um, we should be celebrating. You know, it's, it's on December 15, 1978, when we put out the communique that announced the establishment of diplomatic relations uh, between the United States and China. I'm fond of saying I was a xiao tudo. I was a small potato in the, in the State Department. And um, I still treasure the check that I wrote a month later which established the American Institute in Taiwan. But as we talked about this anniversary and, and celebrating the anniversary, we thought that we should be focusing on four fields, which are um, you know, business, diplomacy, academics, and culture. So we look for the four best representatives of those four fields, and they're seated with me right here. Um, Hank Greenberg is not only uh, vice chair of the National Committee, but everybody knows his, his business record and has been, I think, just about the earliest American who was doing business in China. In 1975, he saw the potential, and then probably more than any CEO over these many decades went to China and built uh, successful businesses, not only built successful businesses, but um, advised the Chinese government on many things for which yesterday in the Great Hall of the People, he was awarded one of the, though he is right here with us, his son went and received the honor, one of the, the rare, uh, what's called the Friendship Award, Hank? I think so. <laughs> Friendship Award from, the, from the, the Chinese government in the Great Hall with some other great luminaries, including the former Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Guan Yu, who also was not there for another reason. He's dead. Uh, yes, he's dead. Um, and several Japanese prime ministers who had promoted constructive engagement. So Hank will be talking about the business side. We've got Chaz Freeman, who I've known for more years than I like to admit. Uh, we were law school classmates together. So way, way, way back when, and played uh, really, he wasn't a xiaotu, though. He was a datu, though, in the State Department at that point, working on the establishment of diplomatic relations with China and continued to work with China over these, these many, many, many decades. And Mike Lampton, who was one of my predecessors uh, at the committee as president and has been really one of the great thinkers on U.S.-China relations over these many decades, um, and has written extensively. If you haven't read his stuff, you have not followed U.S.-China relations. And then on the cultural side, Kathy Barbash, who has now been a member of the committee for a long time and has played um, an integral role in U.S.-China cultural exchanges, starting with the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra. So very, very early, which went in the first time was 73 while I was still in college, but I brought them back in 93 for their second visit. <laughs> so we'll hear from each, then I'll ask some questions, and then we'll, we'll open the, uh, the floor uh, to questions. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, the idea is we're going to look back and then look ahead. And one of the 
purposes of this is we're not, you know, in this environment of tension and trouble and kind of rejection of constructive engagement and the successes of the establishment of diplomatic relations. I'm, I hope this panel takes a more nuanced view and looks at the benefits as well as some of the troubles. But let me first turn it over to my friend Hank Greenberg. All right, my friend. Good evening. Let me begin by giving a little history of our company. Our company started in China in 1919 by Cornelius V. Starr, uh, the first American insurance company to be licensed in China. And he was there uh, until... You got a lean what? I'm, I'm, I'm at the top of it. <laughs> uh, he was at the World War II. He had to leave during World War II. He hired only uh, Chinese, um, where the other foreign companies in in England and in uh, and in how's that? Is any better? Okay. Uh, the other foreign companies in England, from England and France, only hired people from their own country and only uh, wrote insurance for companies from those countries. Star, on the other hand, hired only Chinese and only wrote Chinese business. And uh, he was quite successful. He left during World War II, of course, for obvious reasons returned when the war ended, and then China had its revolution, he had to leave then, never went back. Uh, but a lot of the people that he hired in China, the Chinese, worked for our company in Hong Kong uh, for many years. So I went to China first in 1975. I joined Star a few years before that. He passed away, I became the head of the company, uh, we were operating all through Southeast Asia and, and Japan. So I stopped in China on almost every trip and built relationships uh, that no other American insurance company uh, had uh, done. And so over the years, uh, uh, we had business in China. It took me 20 years to get a license, 20 years to get the only foreign life insurance company license in China. Uh, called uh, it was AIA, a Hong Kong company that we owned. It was highly successful. Uh, we introduced the, what was called the agency system, whereas the Chinese life companies used to use their employees to sell insurance, and they got paid salaries whether they sold or not. The agency system, of course, you got a commission if you sold something. And that's the way it works in the United States and elsewhere in the world. China adopted that, and Jiang Zemin, the president, said to me, you create a million jobs in China, which we did. So we had a long history in China. Um, I got to know Zhu uh, Rongji, who was then the mayor of Shanghai. He became the premier, as you know, and um, did a great job, I thought, as premier. Uh, I helped him introduce uh, a, a, an organization called IBLAC. It was uh, to, in, to get foreign companies to come to China, particularly in Shanghai. And that is existence today. They just celebrated the 30th anniversary. Uh, 
So our history in China is long and deep. Um, I go about three or four times a year. We have a growing business in China, uh, probably the largest foreign insurance company in the country. Uh, we do many things. We have an investment operation that's been highly successful. Uh, I'm troubled, obviously, as all of us are, uh, by the uh, by the issues between our two countries right now. <clears throat> China's the second largest economy in the world. We can't treat them the same way as we treated them when they were had no business at all. When the when the when the revolution ended and they and they um, opened the market, they had very little of anything. The U.S. helped them, uh, and so to treat them the same now as the second largest economy in the world, soon to be the number one economy in the world, with a billion four hundred million people against our three hundred million. Uh, they'll be the number one economy in the world. It's only a matter of time, not if. It's going to happen. So we can't treat them the same way as we did when they were uh, a tiny uh, economic power. And that's an issue. Um, I've been very candid about that with the Chinese. I wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal not uh, not too long ago. That lays all lays it all out. Uh, we spilled a lot of blood during the war for China, uh, as we should have at the time. Uh, so uh, these issues are here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned uh, how it's trying to be negotiated. Uh, to me, I get the bureaucrats out of the way who are negotiating. Uh, I think they're each trying to prove points, and that's not the way to do it. I think that uh, if you put two uh, U.S. business executives in a room with two Chinese executives of business and lay out the issues that we think bother us. For example, um, U.S. companies, by and large, from different industries, are treated differently uh, than Chinese companies are in that country. Uh, Chinese companies, on the other hand, want to come to the United States, by and large get the same treatment as American, as American companies. That can't continue. It has to change. Uh, and you can't try and take somebody's technology in order to get them into the country. That's wrong. It has to change. And I think it will. It has to be negotiated the proper way. I don't think any business executive of a Chinese company would say that we're entitled to your technology. They wouldn't say that. They would give in on that. The same thing they would, they have to say, if, if, if they're gonna be treated differently in China, they're gonna be treated differently in the United States. They wouldn't want, they wouldn't want that, obviously. So I, I get the bureaucrats out of the way. And several people I've talked to in our own government agree with that. But, they don't make the decision. Um, so I'm optimistic about the future. I think we have to be very uh, much on our toes. We have to work this out. Uh, I think a world with U.S. and China uh, are allies is a very safe world. Uh, a world where China and Russia become allies, even though historically 
that doesn't seem to uh, be possible. It could be. We mustn't keep that from happening. We must keep that from happening. And so, you know, it's a full-time job staying on top of China. I'm there, as I say, very frequently. I'm very honored about the, about the uh, award yesterday. Uh, I sent one of my sons to be there to receive it. Uh, it was conducted in the Great Hall of the People. Uh, it was jammed. The whole standing committee was present. Uh, President Xi personally went around and gave the award to each of the participants. Those who were alive, <laughs> I'd say about half the participants had a representative, they were dead. Uh, I hope that's not a f uh, looking at the future soon. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I was very honored about that. Uh, um, we do a lot of things in China. Apart from running a, a pretty successful business, we've, we've been very generous. Um, uh, our foundation has done many things in China. Uh, I'm very proud of what we've done. And I think it's very important that we that we work out these issues with China as soon as possible. I do not think it's in our national interest to have this go on very much longer. I'll stop there. Be glad to answer any questions. Great, Chaz. Uh, we're here for anniversaries. Don, we're here for anniversaries of various sorts. Um, and I can't help noticing Jan Barris sitting over there, or standing over there, um, surveilling everything. Um, uh, there's, we have an anniversary coming up, Jan, January 2nd, 1969. Uh, we were in the same class at the Foreign Service Institute learning Chinese. Uh, so that was 50 years ago. Well, <laughs> this is also, uh, I note, uh, the 40th anniversary of the opening of the third plenum of the 11th uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, Central Committee meeting, uh, which Deng Xiaoping launched reform and opening. Uh, and it was not an accident that today, uh, three days ago, uh, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of Jimmy Carter's and Deng Xiaoping's politically courageous decision to normalize relations between the United States and the People's Republic of China. And those two decisions, the Third Plenum and the normalization, are two sides of one strategy. Uh, I've been involved in our relations with China one way or another for somewhat over 50 years. And uh, thinking about how China and the world as well as uh, US relations with both have changed over that period, I'm struck by many ironies. Uh, the United States sought to change China's geopolitical position, not China's socioeconomic system. Yet our opening to China informed and enabled major changes in its domestic political economy. When Washington first reached out to the People's Republic, it saw China as isolated, vulnerable, and unstable. We now confront a globally connected and relatively wealthy China with very strong capitalist characteristics. Our concerns about Chinese weakness have given way to worries that China may have become a formidable, perhaps overwhelming, geoeconomic competitor, and that it might displace our influence not just in its region, but on the Eurasian landmass and in adjacent areas. 
When we Americans rediscovered China after decades of enmity and ostracism, we easily reverted to an updated version of the paternalistic missionary mentality we had exhibited in the pre-communist era, implicit, implicitly positioning ourselves as the guardians and tutors of the Chinese. Now that they've graduated from our tutelage and are themselves becoming a teacher to the world, we're frankly uncertain about how to deal with them. Our opening to China helped it to study, adopt, and adapt the world's best practices, strengthen itself, and enter a long period of political economic stability. The world is more prosperous and stable for that, but both American hegemony and confidence in our ability to compete are receding. We sought to counter the Soviet Union by enlisting China in containing it. But with China as our partner, we ended up not just containing, but bankrupting and destroying the USSR. We had quite forgotten that the premise of containment was that, left to itself, the Soviet system would collapse of its own defects. Four decades later, when George Kennan, uh, as George Kennan had predicted in arguing for containment, the Soviet system finally succumbed to its infirmities. But we were astonished. Our attempt to use China to rebalance global geopolitics had vastly exceeded our expectations and altered those geopolitics fundamentally. In the 20th century, we wanted China to be able to defend itself against its aggressive neighbors, first Japan and then the USSR. But when it became able to do so, it also became able to defend itself against us. We are not coping well with China's contributions to the inevitable loss of our seven decade long military primacy in East Asia and the Pacific. Instead of finding ways to enlist Chinese power as much as possible in support of our own, we are treating Beijing as a malevolent peer competitor and ramping up military confrontation with it in support of a crumbling and likely unsustainable status quo. Americans never realized and never imagined, never imagined that our outreach to China could transform the world's ideological dynamics as well as its geopolitical geometry. The architects of our China policy were not moral <laughs> crusaders exactly. Nixon and Kissinger sought to change China's foreign policy, not its regime or its political system. With the sole exception of the first year of the Clinton administration, the impulse to re-engineer China's domestic order was a popular hope born of ideological conviction that never became policy. And when it did briefly become policy, it failed decisively. Americans' concerns for human rights did not disappear, but the policy was abandoned, leaving only lofty talk and castigation behind it. The Clinton policy was driven by critics who had consistently argued that the US government should seek China's democratization as the price of cooperating with it. With the Cold War over, they thought it was high time that China change its politics. Now the very same critics and their intellectual kin proclaim US engagement with China to have failed because it didn't achieve the policy objectives they espoused, but were unable to impose on successive American administrations. 
It's true, we did not Americanize China. As you probably recall, in 1940, Senator uh, Kenneth Wary of Nebraska famously declared that with God's help, we will lift Shanghai up, ever up, until it's just like Kansas City. <laughs> Shanghai is not yet just like Kansas City. Uh, and it's true that Chinese realities have not followed the course predicted by liberal political theory. One wonders whether it, it's the theory, not our relationship with China, that merits re-examination. As a result of internal changes in China, as well as in the international environment, democracy may no longer seem destined to triumph over all other political dispensations. We're in a great power competition that will be decided by socioeconomic performance, not political pretense or presumed ideological virtue. The question is not whether our system is right, but whether it enables us to compete with the very competitive variant that China has evolved. Some Americans, nostalgic for the simplicities of the Cold War, suffer from enemy deprivation syndrome. <laughs> they are in earnest search of a hostile ideology against which to orient themselves, and they see China as the answer to their distress. After all, when we opened ourselves to China, Beijing advocated the worldwide overthrow of capitalism the destruction of global multilateral institutions, and the replacement of the American-sponsored liberal world order with Marxist-Leninist hegemony. But it's been more than four decades since China offered such a challenge. Our policies toward China have played a major role in creating a world that prefers muddling through to anti-American ideological evangelism. That's better for us, even if some are not happy about it. Once President Clinton's effort to compel China to adopt Western standards of human rights had definitively failed, his administration turned to an effort to incorporate China fully into the American-led world order. That effort succeeded. China is now a valued member of the international community and an active participant in its established systems of governance including all of the Bretton Woods legacy institutions. It has expanded the world order Americans created, not contracted or eroded it <coughs> by adding institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Bank, and other development funds. These organizations and their capital parallel, supplement, complement, and cooperate with the World Bank and regional development banks they do not compete with them. From the founding of our republic two centuries and uh, 200 and more years ago, uh, 242 years ago, I guess, um, we Americans have seen China as a huge potential export market for our goods and services. It's now finally on the way to becoming the world's largest consumer society and market. And as it has prospered, China has become our fastest growing export market. But facts and long-term considerations be damned. It's too late to head off the populist goon squad. We began our relationship with the People's Republic with a trade surplus. I remember arguing that bilateral trade balances were irrelevant to my Chinese uh, counterparts. 
That unexpectedly evolved into a massive trade deficit as our companies came to see China as an economical source of manufacturers for export to both the United States and other countries. This has kept consumer prices low and it has mitigated the increasing inequality of income distribution in our country. We're now in a trade war that imperils American consumers and both Chinese and American manufacturers. As our president is fond of saying, we'll see how that works out. My guess is that we will regret replacing globalization with mercantilism and orderly dispute resolution with winner-take-all bilateral bullying. Mercantilism consists of protectionist policies that aim at government management of trade to maximize exports and minimize imports through high tariffs and import quotas. Mercantilism seeks self-sufficiency and domestic production at the expense of interdependence and comparative advantage. This was China's policy under Mao Zedong. It's now America's policy under Donald Trump. It didn't work out well for China under Mao. Will it work out for America under Trump? I really see no reason to believe that it will. Global supply chains achieve efficiencies by using comparative advantage to create transnational assembly lines. Washington is now employing tariffs and quotas to disrupt and destroy these. As the U.S. closes its market, China is reaffirming its commitment to an expanded role in its economy for imports. China has allowed itself to become dependent on the United States for a significant part of its food supply, which has been the top concern of all Chinese governments throughout history. It relies on high-tech U.S. inputs for its most advanced industries. China has been by far the largest market for U.S. semiconductors, microchips. It's the only large market outside North America where U.S. car companies have gained significant market share. Go to Tokyo or Seoul and see how many American cars you see on the road, and, and so forth. The Trump trade war, far from promoting further market opening by China and greater exports by the United States, is providing the Chinese with compelling arguments to eliminate their dependence on American agricultural and industrial products. Can services in which we have enjoyed a rising surplus be far behind? Seven decades ago, the greatest generation of Americans led the way in creating the multilateral institutions that regulate <coughs> the liberal world order in which we in China have since prospered. Perhaps the oddest thing in this long recitation of ironies is that it is the United States not China that is now attempting to withdraw from that order, sabotaging it as we do so. It is the United States, not China, that is attempting to overthrow multilateralism internationally and replace it with unilateralism. It is the United States, not China, that is refusing to ratify international agreements and withdrawing from or abrogating those it finds uh, inconvenient or burdensome. It is the United States, not China, that exhibits open contempt for the sovereignty of other nations by invading, occupying, employing covert action, and making economic war on them to engineer regime change. It is the United States, not China, that is a co-belligerent 
in an expanding list of horrifyingly destructive foreign wars. Our independence began with a robust statement of our ideals and, and a commitment, as John Quincy Adams put it later, to be the well-wisher of the freedom and independence of all, but the champion and vindicator only of our own. One key objective of the liberal order we Americans created was to make the world safe for continuing national self-determination rather than for power politics or ideological homogenization. How ironic that it is the Chinese, not Americans, who now posit that the consent of the governed, not foreign approval based on ideological criteria, is the source of political legitimacy. And it is the Chinese, not we Americans, to my sorrow, who now go out of their way to show respect for the sovereign diversity of nations. We have differences with China and some entirely legitimate complaints about its trade and investment practices. Experience shows that intelligent diplomacy, with intelligent diplomacy, such disputes with China can be resolved by negotiation. They do not, indeed they must not, constitute a casus belli. Treating them as such will not just cost us dearly, it is potentially fatal. We have changed China in more ways than we appear to recognize. We have changed too. In some ways, internationally, under our 45th president, it seems that we've met the enemy and he is who we used to be. Thank you. Mike, let's talk about academics over the last uh, 40 years. Well, uh, good to be here. Can everybody in the back here? Um, in any case, glad to be here. Um, this organization's done such wonderful work over the years. I think we ought to celebrate that as well as the relationship. Um, I guess let me frame what I have to say about the academic educational relationship. It's been tremendously successful. It's tremendously successful today. And I'm, I am worried that some of the um, policies in place in both our countries, I won't say totally imperil it, but will impair it. So optimistic about where we've been. Uh, still many good things going on, but we need to be vigilant about some problems. That's the uh, frame I'd like to put on it. I'm personally invested uh, in this area. Um, Mike Oxenberg was a friend of many of us. He was in the National Security Council, and he and President Carter, at the time of normalization, I think had a very sound concept for the development of our relationship. And that wasn't a, was not enough for President Carter uh, and uh, Deng Xiaoping to, be, to have reached agreement among two people, in effect. But that our two systems had to be integrated. And the way you did that is you built bilateral relationships between all of the line agencies. And two of the easiest opportunities were embodied in one department, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. As a young PhD student, I'd written my dissertation on the politics of medicine in China. And uh, it goes to show you, if you're a you're, you're one-eyed person in the land of the blind, you're, uh, you, you got a pretty good leverage position. So uh, Secretary Califano's office called and said, would you go to China with, with us? We're going to negotiate a health and an education agreement. 
Uh, we went, and uh, there were struggles along the way to decide what the nature of that agreement ought to be, but it was very forthcoming. We decided to cooperate with China in cancer research, uh, genetic research, recombinant DNA. There was a whole list of things. Uh, and we took a very forthcoming uh, position. On the education uh, agreement, we also moved forward there. It's interesting as a kind of uh, signal of the, the uh, temper of the times. We had the money for the health, uh, the health agreement, but separately we had to negotiate an education agreement, and there was no money, and the federal government hadn't reached quite consensus on how this was going to be paid for. And Secretary Califano, finally in a moment of... Uh, uh, exasperation said, if it comes down to it, I'm going to pay for it. Uh, now he went back, and I'm sure he was relieved to find out that the, uh, the bureaucracy was able to deliver on his, his promise. But those agreements still exist, and their co cooperation among agencies, and I forget at the height, I think as I recall, there were 40 or 50 interagency agreements, uh, environmental protection agency, and so on. So one of the virtues of bureaucracy uh, is, in fact, once you institutionalize, it tends to go on. And many agencies have not ever had a, a exact an appropriation from Congress for cooperation, but they've had to find the money elsewhere in the budgets and finance it. So I think it, uh, it's a very sound concept that we have to weave these bureaucracies together. And I think. A, if we're thinking about things the committee ought to be thinking about is get a kind of survey of how, where is cooperation now in all of these interagency uh, agreements. Um, so that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is I think we need a little historic uh, perspective here. If you ask in 19, when Richard Nixon went to China and Kissinger and, and then later on President Carter and Brzezinski, and then when we began to build all these agency relationships, who were we talking to in China? And the answer is, in many cases, the people who were trained in the United States in the 1940s or before. We were, in fact, talking to the, the, the results of educational and cultural exchange from the preceding period. So as we think about now what we have, we've got 350,000 Chinese students in this country today. Uh, and of course, if you add it up over the last 40 years, it's a very substantial number. And so no matter what happens today, tomorrow, or the day after, there's this human plug between our two societies. I mean, things will come up and down, but those human resources are there, and we ought to keep that as a, a uh, I think one of the many benefits that, uh, that we've had. Um, the other thing to remember is there have been enormous benefits that don't get sort of plugged in when we start talking about strategy and nuclear proliferation, all important topics. But there have been a lot of very important developments at what I would call the society to society educational research level. Uh, important results have been in, in cancer epidemiology because China has, has not such, at least until recently, such a mobile population. You could study groups over time that stayed in the same place and begin to understand what kinds of environmental factors are associated with uh, different disease patterns and so forth. China provides areas for knowledge, the same in seismic uh, research, China's a very seismically active area. 
if you think about some of the things we've done between our Academy of Engineering and China's, uh, as it turns out, food production system, well, we've helped China reduce food loss in its uh, supply chain, uh, refrigeration, transportation, aseptic packaging, things that many of us don't really think about very often, but enormously improve the, the quality of life uh, in, in China. Uh, things like clean coal technology. Now, I know there are many environmental purists that say uh, clean coal is an oxymoron, and I'm, I'm not disputing it at that level, but there is cleaner and less clean coal, and we can move, at least if China's going to use it, uh, in more productive ways. So the point is, our academic relationship and, and research relationship, and this includes the firms that have enormous research capacity, I think have really brought a lot of benefit to both of our peoples. And we ought to keep, when I go through the litany of problems, keep in mind this larger uh, picture. I, I would just say one other thing. Uh, higher education is a big business. It's, it's a very special big business. Uh, it's not only a business, but it has its business components. And uh, I've done a back of the envelope calculation. The Chinese student population in this country brings in about 12 or 13 billion dollars a year in tuition and related fees. That's something like U.S. soybean exports uh, uh, and aircraft and or air aircraft. I mean, it's a big export item for the United States. So when I see the United States uh, policy trend towards making this exchange harder, it's, it's going to have an effect just as tariffs have on what you call more, more merchandise uh, trade. So we've had big positive effects, I think. It's very important to our economy. It's very important to the future of our country. Having said all that, though, I'm very worried that two trends are colliding that's gonna, that are going to have very unfortunate consequences for the academic and research uh, relationship. And that is that basically we are now becoming more and more consumed by the security dimensions. And I, by that putting it that way, I don't mean it's unworthy or an inappropriate concern. I think it is. But the more we are concerned about our security, the less forthcoming we're going to be on the whole technology research dimension. It's just, it's a Security is intrinsically, in a sense, uh, a kind of feeds a zero-sum mentality, at least under certain circumstances. So as security is becoming a bigger and bigger concern, this is ramifying throughout the educational and research relationship, both corporate and academic. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's the first thing. Secondly, both of our countries are uh, defining high technology and innovation as our future. They are strategic areas of competition. Well, whatever you think, American universities and American corporations are key innovators. And so the more concerned we are about Chinese competition in a kind of negative way, uh, concerned that we're losing our innovation potential, this is going to be reflected in policies that affect American academic institutions, corporate research, and so forth. So that brings me to the less optimistic part of what I have to say. Uh, I spent yesterday just trying to catalog all of the things that are happening that have a bearing on our academic relationship. And my point isn't that 
academic values ought to always uh, prevail over everything else. It's not that these are the only things going on, but they are worrisome and they will have consequences, and we better think about it before rather than after uh, all of this. So what are some of the things going on? I, I broke this out into what I'll call government moves and then we'll call more private sector uh, uh, moves. And let me make it sure, uh, clear also, China's doing things that are not helpful too. So this isn't a one-way street of who's being less uh, uh, helpful. Uh, the first thing that you have to go back to is actually in 2014, the American Association of University Professors basically in many, uh, as a national organization, basically said that uh, uh, universities ought to renegotiate their agreements with Confucius Institutes to make sure universities were in total control of all aspects or they ought to sever the agreement. So this skepticism isn't just of the last two years, it's not just Mr. President Trump, but in fact this skepticism has been growing over time and, and certainly you can go back to 2014. Uh, another notable stage, and I'll just sort of, this is Congress, uh, in uh, February of uh, 2018, this year, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee had a hearing. The FBI Director, Mr. Ray, talked about informal social col uh, intelligence collectors on university campuses and has really raised the issue of how if you can't export technology to China, how can you expose Chinese students to it on American campuses? Uh, and not a, a totally frivolous question, but it is one with deep implications because one-tenth of the U.S. PhDs issued, all the PhDs in the United States went to Chinese students on temporary visas, which is the category here. We are talking about a population on, uh, on, in medical schools, in physics departments, in the labs, in graduate school, um, in the TAs, these are importantly not just Chinese students but many overseas because not as many American students are as interested in some of these technical uh, fields. So you've got that. You've now, uh, in June, you have the Department of State issue new guidelines for screening students abroad, and I think Chinese are, students are among uh, the targets uh, there. You have the National Defense Act uh, 2019, although passed last year, that basically no Pentagon money will go to universities that have Chinese language, can't go to Chinese, support Chinese language study if Confucius Institutes are there. So universities will have to choose between Pentagon money potentially and, uh, and Confucius Institute uh, monies. Uh, you take the national security strategy of December 20, uh, security strategy of 2017 December, uh, universities are vectors for the loss of strategically vital knowledge to China. So you can see that this, this concerns in our strategic uh, documents. Well, I won't go on with that, let, uh, with that, but there's a lot going on governmentally. <laughs> That's the point, we ought to be paying attention. Some of it's probably justified and some of it's probably not, uh, not very wise. Uh, in the private sector, there have been a flurry of, of reports, and I won't go through them all, uh, but uh, just for example, my own uh, university, Johns Hopkins, uh, my school, School of International Studies, uh, you know, was uh, attacked in the press for taking money from Hong Kong. 
uh, Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, the whole idea being that it if influences uh, uh, potentially choices of uh, curricular choices or topics of research uh, and so forth. Well, people are going to be a lot less willing to take funds if, it's, uh, if you end up tainted by that, that process. Um, uh, just, uh, just a couple other things. And then uh, the Wilson Center uh, came out in August with a, a report entitled Political Influence and Interference Activities. And it was focused mostly on, well, anyway, there are about 15 different things here. Let me just end by saying that um, I think we have to be very mindful that we not get into a stampede mentality of calling into question the integrity of American Chinese in the process, chi calling into question Chinese students in all cases, or casting a pall over this, that we not set back our own research endeavors in corporations and in by a, an overemphasis on security. Now, of course, the key is what's an overemphasis, I realize. But nonetheless, I think we need to be vigilant on this front. Because when all is said and done, this has been a tremendous human achievement. You know, the people who pushed this for the last 40 years, on balance, there are a lot of people that are really a lot better off and have the experience of open society. Uh, they take it back to their own society. It's not going to be expressed exactly as we would wish, but nonetheless, uh, you know, the next time we are going into a growth and policy phase, it's going to be all the people that we've worked with for the last 40 years that we're going to be dealing with for the next 40 years. Thanks. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to end this evening on perhaps a ray of optimism. And I'm You're not ending me because we have questions. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I'll be speaking as someone who began as a student of political science, then went to the orchestra management world, and now finds herself somewhere in between. So 40 years ago in China, culture was solely a tool of the state for the internal management of its own citizenry and the communication of its message to the outside world. And in the United States, culture never has been. Forty years ago, all programs going to and from China were ne by necessity facilitated by government organizations. There was only one path to creating the relationship. Programs in China could only be government produced, whereas in the United States they were produced by NGOs. Cultural exchanges were used to expand our relationship and create bulwarks against Soviet influence. They were thus largely symbolic with media coverage key to building popular support for a U.S.-China relationship. The National Committee facilitated the visits of the ping-pong teams, the Shenyang acrobats, and the Philadelphia Orchestra. The first formal cultural agreement was signed in 1979, with renewals continuing through this year. Early projects used leading artists, the Boston Symphony, Jerome Robbins and Alvin Ailey Dance Companies, Arthur Miller, Isaac Stern, and in 1988, Columbia Artists produced the first commercial acrobatic tour since pre-revolutionary times. U.S. Film Weeks were also scheduled. Um, increased trade possibilities made sponsorship attractive to U.S. corporations. Pan Am, among others, sponsored the Boston Symphony Orchestra Tour. 
Cygnus sponsored the Philadelphia Orchestra's 93 tour, and AIG has been very generous in supporting the New York Philharmonic tours. And this was very vital be, uh, because though the US government facilitated the tours, funding was primarily the responsibility of those touring. The 80s and 90s saw mostly one-way traffic, America exporting culture to China, and the Chinese studied our culture in preparation for building a base of their own future cultural exchanges and commercial cultural export. Cultural exchange implies no fee, that just the in-kind expenses and uh, presenting is provided while you're in the other country. In the 80s, American conservatories and artist agents began recruiting Chinese talent. Rosters included acrobatic groups and dance companies, and this was very lucrative for American companies because fees were low, U.S. demand high, and there were no unions to protect the performers from sometimes exhausting tour schedules. In the early 2000s, the effect of reform in opening up and the impending WTO entry reached the cultural apparatus in China. Till then, China's cultural industry was a state-run monopoly, controlling which performance, uh, performers visited China and which performers toured abroad. The breakup of this monopoly allowed development of multiple avenues of exchange and commerce. Savvy Chinese arts managers worked with US agents to create more marketable product. The China Performing Arts Agency and IMG artists spent three years developing their Shaolin Warrior Tour to capitalize on the craze for martial arts in the US. The younger generation of Chinese officials understood that the US cultural industry was not government organized or regulated. So they finally reached out to varied organizations for projects. And states and cities participated through the sister relationships and regional arts organizations such as Arts Midwest produced vigorous programs. For example, Arts Midwest has toured Lakota traditional performers in both urban areas and rural minority areas in China, from the National Center for Performing Arts to migrant worker schools. Uh, they have also identified Chinese programming for the US market and toured groups to second and third tier US cities and mentored Chinese ensembles into readiness for international touring. The Chinese started to pay fees to American artists and American commercial theater came to China. In 2005, the Kennedy Center produced a month-long festival of China, bringing over 900 performers without any interference from the Chinese government, but with all artist and trans transportation fees paid by the Chinese government. Chinese frustration at what was seen as a lack of understanding and respect for their culture sometimes led them to buy their way into the US market. There was so little interest in the 2005 China Philharmonic tour that they gave the concerts away. And this was necessary because it was a polygroup back tour and so a loss of face would have been intolerable. Uh, the Shanghai Symphony bought half a New York, uh, New York Philharmonic Parks concert in 2010. Broadway producers have organized limited runs for Chinese shows with the expectation of favors in Guangxi in return. There was an obsession for creating successful Chinese musicals for Broadway, but the, the results were sometimes surreal. One production, Jews of Shanghai, felt like a Mel Brooks version of a revolutionary opera. <laughs> and there was great irony that the, the Chinese side producer of this show was a textile factory, a, a schmata factory. <laughs> On the other hand, 
many US university and amateur cultural groups also self-funded their own tours to China. So today, I'm happy to say that exchanges take place in many ways, from traditional government-related projects to do-it-yourself individual entrepreneurial initiatives. A few years ago, I collaborated with the Yulin Center for Contemporary Art to create a jazz composition residency in conjunction with saxophonist Ted Nash um, and a Rauschenberg exhibit that they were presenting. So every day, Ted would work with the Chinese musicians. It was an all call. Anyone, any Chinese jazz musician who wanted could participate for free. Every morning, they improvised in front of the Rauschenberg work in the gallery. The rest of the day and night, they workshopped. And at the end of the week, they had a new nine-movement musical suite, which they premiered at UCCA. Um, US funds were and still are granted on a competitive basis by the US Embassy Beijing, the State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, US Artists International, and other foundations and NGOs. But funding is still generally catch as catch can. Now, major festivals in Shanghai and Wuhan co-commission collaborative works with US artists and present avant-garde American work. Cadillac and General Motors have purchased naming rights for large Chinese stadia. In the past, American plays and musicals were presented primarily by touring companies or students at international schools. Now, Chinese producers buy the rights and produce local Chinese language versions. Now also, there's greater competition for identifying and accessing partners, guanxi and funding in both government and private sectors. The Juilliard Tianjin Initiative was guanxi instigated, and the PR involvement of Peng Liran was a real masterstroke. This competition plays out through soap opera-worthy domestic and international rivalries of aspirations, status, guanxi, and money at the highest levels in each country. And I'm not giving any details because I'm not ready to end my career. <laughs> Sponsorships are now only attractive if they fit a corporation's marketing plan. Hennessy sponsored a recent Philadelphia Orchestra tour because they found they could compare the blending of orchestration to the blending of a fine cognac. Chinese corporate sponsorships of international projects are still rare. China Merchants Bank was a sponsor of Carnegie Hall because of the relationship with Long Long. Um, recently, a Bank of China official was on the board of Lincoln Center. And now in China, private sector organizations can produce and finance projects. But still, the most effective cultural exchanges arise from long-term relationships and aligned goals. Trust allows frankness and coded language expresses both understanding and sensitivity to the situation. The artful youth, uh, use of current jargon from political campaigns facilitates the deal-making. I once convinced a Chinese official to fight for sponsorship for the independent Beijing Modern Dance Company by claiming that government support was consistent with Jiang Zemin's theory of three represents because they were the advanced forces of production. And they got their funding. <laughs> American cultural workers uh, now work hard to find young Chinese artists and their unofficial networks, independent voices who have decided to live and work outside the system of official institutions and government patronage systems. They also work hard to support and protect them. Recently, the direction of China's cultural diplomacy has changed. It's still looking outward, but not necessarily at the United States. It has added a cultural component to its One Belt, One Road initiative and has created a network of Silk Road Arts Festival's annual conference. One also sees a slowly growing confidence 
that China doesn't need US approval and success for its, Chinese, uh, its cultural products. It is content to create product for its domestic audiences. Right now, the latest sensations are musical dramas inspired by the science fiction novels, The Three-Body Problem. Mm. Going forward, I think that the diverse paths of engagement will continue. The Ministry of Culture will still be the first stop for discussing major government-to-government -government initiatives, despite more limited funding on both sides. Official groups will be favored, though independent players from both countries will continue to survive, exist within limits. There will be continued preoccupation with One Belt, One Road and engagement with culture elsewhere. It may get harder to find Chinese collaborators. Uh, but there will be continued general funding challenges and we will have to go where the, they will go where the money is. Uh, commercial enterprises will remain the most nimble. Big names will be paid big fees. Activities will be market dri uh, driven. We will have to work harder to find and fund projects with independent voices and encourage under the radar networks of creation and support from US producers and presenters. Uh, China's challenging uh, challenges now is there is increasing, um, as was said, there's increasing pushback against heavy handed public diplomacy efforts. University of Michigan is going to be closing its performing arts based Confucius Institute next year. Some unfunded mandates in the US will cease to exist if they can't find uh, other sponsorship. Um, and there is a continuing retrenchment of the cultural, indus cultural industry un under the current regime, which may led, uh, lead to an artistic exodus from those Chinese A-listers who are now trying to live a binational existence. Uh, there is a continuing lack of understanding of US cultural markets. They don't do the research. Official presentations are obliged, uh, obliged to present politically and history-laden works, not what's cool and now. And also the, the effect of censorship on the arts will, um, will create work that is not of great interest to the US public. Uh, they can't accept that good art can't be created by a command economy. Um, back in 1971, to close now, back in 1971, the New York City Center, which was involved in the first presentation of the Shenyang Acrobats, wrote to Jiang Qing, asking permission to tour the Peking Opera. And the response they received read, our model dramas are especially prepared for the appreciation of our working people, not for our enemy and money-scented capitalists like you, by whom a criticism and attack on the opera after seeing it may be repeated. We have come a long way since then. <laughs> and culture will continue as the one safe space for relationships and dialogue when other avenues have closed. Thank you. Let me ask a couple of questions and then we'll, we'll turn to the audience. Uh, Hank, um, obviously your, your success um, in doing business in China is unrivaled. The, but we also have a lot of other success stories today. You know, we have Apple. We have Caterpillar, we have Boeing, you know, we have General Motors. They've all been hugely successful. I think was was it Mike or Chaz who said, you know, we don't see a lot of GM cars in in, in Seoul or Tokyo, but we we do see them in Beijing. Why do you think the narrative is 
that China has, that U.S. companies have not succeeded in China, that they all have had their intellectual property stolen, that their market has been closed, when in fact there are tons of success stories. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially yours. There are many others, and you named some of them. We do business with most of them, uh, both here and in China. <clears throat> they spend time on it, but they also agree to some of the requirements that the Chinese uh, uh, lay on them. There's no question about that. Uh, and that, you know, that is an, uh, an issue that has to be resolved. But uh, the facts speak for themselves. Yeah. I have to leave in a minute. Okay. Well, um, Chaz, say, similar question for you in diplomacy. You know, since you were the Datu Do in the State Department, um, and you were, when you first started working on the U.S.-China relations, we were involved in a war in Vietnam. Uh, a lot of Americans were dying every day. And since we've established diplomatic relations, guess what? No Americans have died in Asia on the battlefield. <laughs> Why do you think the narrative is, why is that not the narrative? Why isn't that constructive relations have brought us 40 years of peace? Well, I think uh, facts actually don't speak for themselves. Uh, um, the, um, uh, I, noticed, uh, I noticed, for example, in the discussion of our economic relationship, nobody ever mentions the roughly $250 billion of uh, manufacturing production in China by American companies, largely for the Chinese market, not for export to the U.S. This is part of a, a success story. Uh, I agree with uh, with Mike that uh, what I call fossil friendship is important. You know, you lay down a stratum of friendship and other things happen, but that stratum is still there and it can be mined uh, later as, as it was. Um, why, the, why the disconnect now? Um, I think there are multiple factors. Um, we are in a, a state in our country of great dissatisfaction with ourselves. Uh, we feel, most of us, we feel we have lost our way. There is a sense of political futility that we're the chorus on the stage of the Greek tragedy. We can see that we're headed in the wrong directions and yet we can't stop the actors from going there. Um, we have, uh, I think, a sort of uh, economic um, demoralization in our country, probably related to uh, the growth of income inequality. Uh, and uh, we are not confident of our own decision-making. You know, we have, a, we have a, a campaign going on that says that the reason Americans voted against Hillary Clinton and for Donald Trump was all because the Russians put us up to it. Uh, that isn't taking much responsibility for our own uh, decisions as, as an electorate. So I think there's a lot of stuff, a lot of dissatisfaction. Uh, nobody really knows how to explain it. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of it uh, is easily blamed on foreigners. Now, this is not the first time we've done this. We have, seem to have cycles every 30 years or so we get, remember it was the Japanese, they were gonna take us over. Um, if you go back to the 19th century, you'll, you'll see the Know Nothing Party and stuff like that. Uh, and it's just China's turn. Why? Because we got accustomed to calling all the shots in East Asia and the Pacific, and now we, don't, we can't do that. 
uh, we have to share space with another very large country that is, in some respects, al already larger than us. Its manufacturing sector is one and a half times ours. Um, we have lots of insurance and financial uh, engineers. Uh, they have real engineers, and that brings me to my, my last point. Um, uh, in the discussion of cutting off uh, science and technology cooperation, uh, what worries me is not, I don't think China's going to stop developing in science and technology. By 2025, they will have more STEM workers, uh, scientific, technological, engineering, and mathematics workers than the entire OECD. Every country in our capitalist sphere. And those people are smart and they are producing innovation increasingly. So I don't worry about the Chinese. I think if we cut ourselves off from the largest population of science and technology in the world, I worry about us. Because uh, all the research and experience shows that innovation is a collaborative process. Uh, you can't shut the closet mm -hmm. and, and in, invent things as efficiently as you can if you're dealing with people. And we have the great blessing and curse of the internet, which allows people in Chengdu to help people in Tampa design products that are then going to be made in Malaysia. And so I think um, I think I worry about uh, about that. Um, if I could explain why the national mood is so anti-China at the moment, um, I would undoubtedly uh, uh, write a book and um, and and make lots of money. But I don't think uh, that's going to happen. <laughs> We're about to lose Mr. Greenberg, so let me just ask one question um, more of you before we lose you, which is, you got that license in Shanghai. Um, what lessons are there for people today in what you achieved? Because it really was a unique uh, achievement. Uh, it's much easier today for anybody compared to what it was uh, 40 years ago. It took me 20 years to get the first uh, life insurance license of a foreign company. In fact, it's still the only company, foreign company, with a life license in China. It'll change momentarily, but it's been years uh, to get that license. I got to know the then mayor of Shanghai, uh, uh, Zhu Rongji, who became premier, and I helped him in many different ways. Uh, and uh, when I got the license, he gave it to me and said at that time, his colleagues told him he was a traitor. Think about that. Because China was not going to open the market for everybody. They didn't want to be taken over by foreign companies. Anyway, I have to go. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Mike, similar question for you. So we've got the, I think you said 13 billion in revenue. You know, we have Chinese TAs taking up an enormous number of the slots in our, in our engineering, math, uh, the, the, our STEM fields in graduate school, and playing a real 
critical role in education of our next generation of folks in this. Why is that narrative not being kind of put out much by the universities, by the, why are people succumbing to this narrative that, you know, Chinese kids are spies there? You know, it's, it seems inconsistent with the reality. Well, I think there, there are many reasons, uh, one of which is, um, as I said, an aspect of universities is a business. And many of the state universities, of course, are directly responsible to state legislatures, which are political bodies and share all the uh, prejudices of uh, the broader society. Uh, and they are uh, not averse to when they're unhappy with what a university president's doing, giving a phone call and by implication holding parts of the budget <laughs> hostage. And we've seen this particularly, uh, we saw it recently with Texas A&M, um, universities in Florida, it's all been published in, in the media. So I think the first thing is the universities aren't always courageous in the sense that they have financing problems and they're important constituencies that are, are more security oriented, if you want to put it that way. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, many people would say, gee, we shouldn't be so dependent on foreign students to be teaching our labs. We ought to up the game on our domestic uh, uh, student body and K through 12 education uh, and so on. So I think the, the, the budget and the, the nexus between, and even if you say take my university, Johns Hopkins, private university, but we uh, get enormous funds through a variety of federal channels for medical and biomedical research. And so the university, if you look at sort of the heft of the various parts of the university, they, they, they don't necessarily want to jeopardize the flow of resources. So I'd say budget and business considerations are not, uh, are the first thing. And many people would say we ought to up our own game domestically in terms of our own talent. But I want to uh, just, piggyback on one thing Chaz said, and that is that uh, implication, certainly in the opening stages of, of our uh, post-normalization, uh, I think the flow of information was pretty one way. Mm -hmm. uh, but over time now, the flow is certainly evening out. Uh, and I'll just give you an example now. I mean, China in 2002 had no high-speed rail system. It couldn't manufacture it. And by 2014, it's a global standard competing with the Japanese, the Koreans, the Canadians, the French, and it's an export industry. And so I think China, it, it, it faces headwinds because of its planned system and, and sort of the uh, political ideology, we'll put it that way. I think that hurts them on innovation a bit, but they've devoted such enormous resources in this direction. Their research and development is going up at about, uh, at about two or uh, about, I think it's about 5% a year to last. And, and you start compounding that out, and they have more engineers now we can debate than we do, or they're turning out more engineers per year than we are. We can debate quality and all of that, but at some point, mass just begins to accumulate. So I think that we're really underestimating what we have to gain increasingly out of intellectual and research cooperation with China. Chaz, you want to add? Yeah, I just want to add that um, there is a sharp difference between Washington 
the federal government on these matters and state governments. State and local governments want very much to keep up the connection with China. They want Chinese investment, uh, they want Chinese trade, uh, they uh, understand that imports as well as exports create jobs, and, uh, and they like the services exports, of which universities are one important factor, but tourism, uh, with three million Chinese tourists coming here annually, uh, is also a major factor at the local level. So uh, I'm not sure how we manage this, but most of the polling data to date does not show great sympathy throughout the country for the trade war uh, with, with China. Um, and, um, you know, we do have elections from time to time, and we may, in fact, see some of the damage that is being done reflected uh, in the next election. Kathy, you know, it's, uh, from the old days, it's been commercialized. I saw, I guess, this morning, that China has increased its quota on uh, U.S. films up to 41 this year? Yes. What, and the story was written as a, negatively. In other words, it was, it was quite fascinating. It was, it was either Bloomberg or Reuters that they wrote, oh, China increased to 41 because they couldn't meet their revenue goals um, without Hollywood movies. Did you say? I, 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 I didn't. But they have, this, they have increased yes, to 41. Have, um, it, it is a battle. Uh, the irony there is that there is one thing as the, uh, the Chinese public watching these films in a, a business capacity in a theater, and they're ripping them off the internet and watching them anyhow. The Chinese public sees the latest American films, whether or not they are imported <laughs> under these licenses or not. Is it still, is, is the theft still rampant? Yes, I think so. Now it's done instead of even uh, though, side, instead even of though street, um, see, you know, DVD sales, they, you know, the hackers know how to download it off the I'll internet. Make a, make a point here. But didn't, there was some recent 3D movie that came out, um, began with an A, but 100 million in U.S. in four days? Oh, yeah. How, how can it be, how can you have 100 million of box office if it's being ripped off? Uh, because going to, uh, it, it's the same factors here, is that going to a movie is a social event as well. Hmm. Chaz, sorry. Um, I just want to point out that there's a cycle here. In the 19th century, um, every book that Dickens wrote was immediately knocked off in Philadelphia, Boston, <laughs> and New York, and uh, no royalties were paid, and he had to come here and give public lectures in order to get some benefit from his artistic labors. That changed in 1898 when the United States became a next net exporter of intellectual property. In the 20th century, the United States, in other words, built ourselves in the 19th century by ripping off intellectual property. The first thing Alexander Hamilton did when he was Secretary of the Treasury was hire two guys to go and steal the textile manufacturing technology that the British had developed. In the 20th century, Japan was pretty guilty of the same kind of activity. Uh, and I can remember in Taiwan, 
uh, the end of the 60s, this was the huge issue. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, I see Natalie nodding her head. In fact, uh, the, uh, when we finally managed to shut down Taiwan's production then of CDs and books, um, they just moved the factories to the mainland. Um, and uh, so now we have new technologies. But the pattern is always the same. Uh, I, my sense is that the Chinese are very concerned now about intellectual property rights because they are creating them and they need to protect them. Uh, and I don't think we're, I think this is a problem that is likely to fade rather than continue, annoying as it is. But you're not suggesting we shouldn't pressure them. Of course we should pressure them. them. Of course we should pressure them. In other words, we them. should, what tools should we use to pressure them? Well, there are all sorts of tools that have been used over the years. Uh, uh, Microsoft used some of the most effective when it found if counterfeiters who produced very good software copies, uh, it contracted with them to produce uh, the software. Um, that's one approach. China now has a very effective uh, legal code on this subject. It is tightening the punishments on it. Uh, that is good. That is in part a re result of our pressure. Uh, but it's an also popular inside China for the reason I mentioned. So I think we need to keep the pressure up, yes. Um, does this mean we need to you know, embargo uh, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Chinese goods? I, I don't think so. Let me open the floor to questions. See some hands. Uh, Bill? Yes. Uh, uh, you speak into this. And that's only for the camera, so speak very loudly for the audience, the live audience. Okay. Uh, I'm Bill Armbruster, retired journalist. My question is for Mike Lampton. I wanted to ask you about the uh, Confucius Institutes. To what extent uh, do the U.S. universities actually have control over them, and to what extent are they controlled by the Chinese government? Um, well, there are about 100 in the United States. So the first thing to say is there's variability uh, in each negotiation. Sometimes the negotiations aren't even known or the contractual arrangements to the university community. It's been negotiated between two administrations. So there is a kind of transparent, if you look across these hundred, um, we don't know all of the provisions that each administration may have agreed to. And there's some variability to how much money China gives. But I can say a couple of things. You take a, a university like Stanford, just for example. Uh, they've negotiated, I understand, at least it was explained to me at Stanford, a, 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 essentially an endowment where the Confucius Institute structure, it's run out of the Ministry of Education, it's called Hanban, uh, has, as I would understand it, virtually no, no control, and China, takes care of personnel, or the Stanford takes care of personnel, and so forth. Others are, uh, personnel is rather exempt from the university structure, and uh, Hanban plays a big role. So I think variability, as I would understand what faculty are generally nervous about, is when it seems that the uh, Confucius Institute uh, has a budget to bring uh, people to speak on campus, but, but there's implicit barriers to what kind of people on what kind of subjects. And so I think faculty in almost all of the schools worry about is there a sort of contamination of, or a dilution of, of academic uh, freedom. 
But uh, I think some universities, and there have been only a two or three, it may, the number may be going up given the pressure I described earlier, but I think the University of Chicago early on got, uh, I'll say, rid of it. Um, I think Penn State had a problem, as I recall. Um, and then there's been Texas A&M was thinking about it, and I think got one of these phone calls from the, the political world that suggested maybe they didn't want to do that. So uh, I think it's becoming more controversial. All I'd say is one other thing is that the big prestigious universities that have big China budgets, I think they have more uh, leverage in the negotiation with the Chinese. Small liberal arts colleges that have smaller budgets and if they're going to teach Chinese, this becomes an important part of their resource base and, and maybe even personnel, teachers and so forth. So I think variability, um, but all I would report is that if you consider there are a hundred, I think most have not become big items of controversy, but maybe that's going to change as we go out. Chaz? Um, they do three things. They teach language, which is absolutely fine. And any university that uh, wants help in teaching language should feel free to engage them. Uh, they run speakers programs. Uh, to the extent that they run those uh, and do not interfere with other speakers programs on the campus, for example, issues like Tibet or Xinjiang or other controversial matters, I think that's a net plus. If they get into academic research, that's a problem. And they shouldn't be allowed in it. Uh, so I think we have to be more sophisticated about this. You know, we have the Alliance Francaise here, I assume, in New York. There must be an Alliance Francaise. 72nd Street, yeah. And uh, they teach language. They also run cultural programs. It's part of di public diplomacy. It's perfectly normal. Um, if, uh, if, this, if Citizen Genet came back and started telling us how we should run our government, that would be a different matter. Uh, so I think, I think uh, there's a rule of reason that needs to be applied here. And what we don't need to do is lapse back into the Palmer raid mentality of uh, xenophobia, uh, lashing out at presumed affiliates of enemies. Kathy, any, anything on this? Obviously, there's a cultural aspect to yes, these Confucius and, um, Institutes. University of Michigan, that um, Confucius Institute was set up as a primarily performing arts institute. And um, my knowledge is that it's largely self-funded by a patron, uh, a local patron. And it has done good work in bringing uh, performing arts from China that would not ordinarily, that's very interesting, some very, very cutting edge, and that would not have a commercial audience here otherwise. So in that respect, it, it is a loss. I think in the case of Michigan, my impression is that they're trying to avoid trouble, uh, political trouble in the future, and have said that they are, are closing it because they are integrating its activities into their larger departments. Uh, also, another, in, in terms of the, um, the culture they offer, this interesting um, conflict, internal conflict between the Ministry of Culture and, and Hanban. Um, several years ago, after about the first three years of the Confucius Institutes in the United, that United States reached some sort of momentum, there was an, uh, we heard that there was an internal audit done about the, the effect of the Confucius Institutes on people's thinking about China and the United States. And it was determined that they were not effective 
So they were told, okay, you have to be, you have to stand for a harder line, but we will give you some performing arts troops to tour with them. This is some sugar coating for the message. And well, the Ministry of Culture got wind of this and went marching down to the Hanban to tell them, stay out of our bailiwick. Mm -hmm. you know, cultural export is our job, not your job. Well, we have in the audience the chair of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations who insists on promptness in ending. So I would not want to disappoint her and not end promptly, but time is up. We've barely scratched the surface of what could be discussed about these 40 years, but I thank our panelists and missing Hank Greenberg for participating today. I also would like to thank Aiken Gum for providing this wonderful, I did not do that in the beginning, for providing this wonderful facility. Thank you, our friends at Aiken.